Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I am Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, today, we are lucky to have on the show Brad Gewertz. Brad is the uh, Managing Director of Investment Banking at DA Davidson & Company in Portland. Brad, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate being on. For sure. So, Brad, hey, tell us, um, tell us, you know, for the people in the in the on in the audience who don't know you, uh, who haven't done deals with you, or haven't been fortunate enough to to do deals with you, tell us tell us about what you work on and and uh, and what DA Davidson does and and what you what you think is going on in the marketplace from your point of view. Okay. Well, thanks, Joe. And again, thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. So I'm an investment banker, and I work at a firm called DA Davidson. I run our tech and telecom group. That will actually tech, media, and telecom. I've been doing this about 32 years. I, I started in New York at JP Morgan in the early 80s. I worked on a number of deals all over the world with big companies. And then I returned back to the Northwest about 10 or 11 years ago. Um, I really work on three or four things. I do a lot of M&A, which is helping people sell their companies. I also help public companies buy other companies. So I have a good idea what the public companies are looking for. We'll call that all M&A. I raise capital for companies. I raise equity and debt for growth and for recap. And we do public offerings. The last thing we do is when public companies do M&A deals, sometimes they hire us for fairness opinions, which are just, um, they're things that we give the board that say that a deal is fair that the, the price is right and that the deal is fair. So that's really what we do. Yeah, and those are usually delivered to the sell side board, right? Uh, well, we do buy side and sell side fairness opinions. Remember, a big public company, we didn't do it, but when Microsoft bought LinkedIn, I'm sure they got a fairness opinion on the buy side also. Gotcha. That's a good point. So, so is that just to back up the decision by the uh, the business folks to make sure that they can kind of defend the the price that they picked, like to, yeah. just, just to, to get comfortable with it? There is a ruling on this, actually, when I first got to Wall Street. Joe will know the exact one. It could have been the Revlon case, but it had to do with the judge saying that the board of directors needs an outside opinion as to the fairness of the price and the other uh, things that surround the deal so that the board's not overpaying. And for sellers that the acquirer is not underpaying. It's does just that, an outside opinion. Does that ever put you in a strange position? I, I would imagine that you're being hired by a board of directors to support their decision to, to buy a company for a particular amount or sell their company for a particular amount. Um, I imagine if, if you were to disagree with the valuation or feel like it wasn't fair, that that could, that could be an awkward conversation. I imagine it's, I imagine it's, it's one great, you have to have. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of the job. But, um, but yeah, have you ever been in it? I mean, without going well, into specifics, uh, does that come up and how do you handle it? It does. It's a very good point. I think there's two ways that we solve that. The first way is more and more, if we're the M&A banker, they pick an outside firm to do the fairness opinion. And if someone else is the M&A banker, they'll pick us to do the fairness opinion. So you split the duties. Mm -hmm. The second reason if they don't split the duties is a fairness opinion is basically like an insurance policy. So you're putting it out there and you, your firm can get sued. So you're very careful. You don't want to say a deal is fair if it's not fair because the plaintiff's lawyers will sue you. So 
there's two checks and balances there, but probably one of the best ones is often companies will hire someone to do the actual M&A deal, an investment bank, and a second one to deliver the fairness opinion, and they are separate hmm. firms. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so Brad, tell us, uh, I've heard this question multiple times now from, from, uh, actually I've heard this, I've heard this, uh, kind of question, aspirational statement, hope from a couple different angel investors have been talking to recently. And the, and the hope is just more, somehow we get more exits into the flow of the system. What do you think is going to happen this, uh, this year? That's a great question. And people ask me that a lot. And so I look at a number of things and here are some factors I would look at if someone asked me that. The first is how are the equity markets doing? Because if the equity markets are doing really well, it means the strategic buyers, their currency is very high. And not all companies are sold off financial metrics. But for example, if a SaaS public company is selling at 10 times sales, they can buy you for eight times sales, it'll still be accretive. So having the market near all-time highs helps you in terms of activity by companies, the price they can pay in terms of their stock, and they can go out and raise capital to raise more cash to buy in cash. Traditionally, when the equity markets are doing really well like they are now, there's a lot of M&A. And historically, when we were at the depths of the recession and, and the, the equity markets were very low, the M&A dipped. Okay? So equity markets being all-time high is very good for sellers. Number two, and I don't want to talk really about the new administration, However, they, they, it is anticipated that they'll be pro-business in terms of taxes and regulations, and that will also be helpful for M&A. Number three, yeah. and, and we can, you know, I don't want to talk about other things having to do with that, but you saw that with the stock market, okay? Traditionally, I don't want to talk about immigration or any of that, but traditionally, lower taxes and lower regulations are good for the market. And good okay. for small business. Okay. The third one I would talk about. Oh, I you let's be interactive. I was just going to go down the list. Oh, I was just going to say that. Um, I mean, re- relative to your industry, the the bill that's going to going to repeal the Dodd Frank Act, um, or at least repeal it in part. It's not going to repeal it in its entirety. Called the Financial Choice Act. It has a section in it which is going to codify that old uh, SEC no action letter on M&A brokers not ha- or M&A, D- M&A, yeah, M&A brokers not having to be registered broker dealers. I don't know if you've seen that or not or even thought about it, but it's interesting. It's probably something that doesn't come up in your business because you guys are, are registered broker dealers and a lot of your competitors maybe aren't. Well, I may have talked to you about that in the past. As much as I am against a lot of regulation, that doesn't mean that all regulation is bad. So when you see a doctor, you want to make sure that that doctor went to medical school, is licensed and trained. When you hire a lawyer, you would like to know that that lawyer went to law school and isn't going to commit malpractice, has continuing education. For whatever reason, the government has made a decision that when you hire an investment banker to do probably one of the most important things in your life, which is sell your company, take your company public, raise capital, that somehow a guy who was laid off from a commercial banking job can now say he's a qualified investment banker without having to go to school, 
without being licensed, without having ethics training, and without having continuing education. And I, I disagree with that view, and I've seen it. Now, fortunately, we're at a level where we don't really compete with a lot of the unlicensed investment banks. But if you think about it, if your profession requires a license and you are neither licensed or trained, should you be offering your services? And, and that's yeah, a question I, for people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So sorry, I took us a little off track here. So we were talking about we we're talking yeah. about M and A tech trends for this year. So and I took you off track. So keep going. Okay. So back to back to M and A uh, tech trends. So the third thing I would look at are the rates on other capital. So right now, interest rates are still historically low. And because interest rates are historically low, these big companies have a lot of cash. They're not earning much money on it. They could pay down their debt if they have debt, but that also doesn't return much to them either. And we've traditionally been in a slow growth environment for the last few years. And in fact, I think they reassessed 2016 and the rate of growth in GNP was below 2%. So these big companies are having trouble growing organically. And a way around that is acquisitions. And these acquisitions allow them to acquire new technologies, new channels for their product, and talent. Google makes a lot of acquisitions based on acquiring talent, and so do other people. So, so the lack of these other alternatives often leads to m and Go ahead. Oh, so this is probably so you you're probably not seeing. I mean, just at the size of the deals that you guys do, you probably don't see a lot of aqua hires. It's probably just those are sort of below your. Although you probably see some bigger deals that have kind of complexions or components of, of things that you would also see in an aqua hire deal. Um, I was just wanted, I was just wondering what your reaction to to that phrase was. It's it's an interesting phrase. It's a recent phrase. We. You know, it's it's strange because on the one hand, we're big enough where we don't see companies buying two people to get the two people. But we're also in the middle market. And in the middle market, when people are buying a company, if there are great founders or great engineers, they still want them. About a year ago, we sold a SaaS software company in California. And the buyer really wanted the product. They, they really did. It was a great product. But the founder was just brilliant in this area. And they came and they said, I, I don't want just the product and the channel. I want the founder and the management team. And so that wasn't really an aqua hire in the sense of they just were hiring people. But if, if the founder and his team had left, I'm not sure they would have bought the company. So in the middle market, they still want that talent. And talent, good talent's hard to find. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I, uh, I, what the, I've pl- helped plenty of you know, two-person companies sell themselves to big companies. And uh, I think one reason why that, um, I mean, it, I heard something interesting about, about the sort of California non-compete situation recently, which was uh, we've been we've been trying to, Sort of, there's, there's a group of people in Seattle up here who are trying to replicate sort of the California law in Washington, uh, with the idea being that it would free up free up labor and make us more competitive with with labor and you know make us more like Silicon Valley. But anyway, one of the things I was told by somebody was, well, 
the only way you can get a non-compete in California is to buy somebody's business. And so that's why you see a lot of these acquirers because, you know, the, the, the young, the young people who are essentially, they do a startup, it's essentially the form of a resume or something, and then they can sell that startup and they can, they can sign an non-compete. It'll be enforceable because they just sold their business. But anyway, it's, I get well, taken off topic. True. No, it's actually a good topic. These are all good. I want to speak to that for a second. Um, Oregon, Washington, and California, California the most, um, they don't like to honor these non-competes with the exception, if you sell your company, they can be enforced. And that makes sense. If you think about it, you go in front of a jury and say, um, you know, this company signed me to a non-compete, but I don't like them and I want to earn a living. Jury's going to be sympathetic. But if you go to a jury and say, I sold my company for $50 million. They put $50 million in my pocket, and now they're trying to enforce a non-compete. Jury's pretty much going to say, hey, you got $50 million. I mean, I think you could work there two years. So they do enforce it if you've sold your company. I think that that's a fair alternative. And, and maybe you're right. Maybe that's led to these um, aqua hires. Right. Okay, I've, I've continued to take you off topic. What was the last? Oh, did you did you round no, up? No, I, I, I've still got reasons why I'm positive. Okay, <laughs> okay, so so, so this, okay, keep going. So equity markets are doing very well. Okay, hopefully the policies of the new administration will be pro business. There's a lack of good alternatives for investing capital, and this makes sense because at the end of the day, they're spending money. Okay, companies have a lot of cash to spend. We did an analysis. Okay, debt is very abundant. And lastly, a lot of private equity funds are nearing the ends of their 10-year life. They raise those funds prior to the previous crash. And one of the things that isn't getting a lot of reporting now is how much activity the private equity firms are doing in tech. Not just for small and middle market companies, but they're buying public companies. Vista bought Marketo. And you're seeing more and more of it. And the private equity alternative is a real thing. We're very plugged into private equity. Yes, we love selling companies to strategic companies. But a private equity firm can come in and say, I won't buy 100%. I'll buy 80%. And I'm a billion-dollar fund. And in five years, with my money and my connections, you'll get to where you thought you would be. And you'll still own 20%. So you get a lot of money now. You get money in the future, and I won't come in and say, I'm smarter than you. So we do a lot of private equity deals in the tech space, and it's growing. And those firms have a lot of dry powder. A lot of dry powder, and, and they're coming near the end of their investment period, so they've got to act quickly. That's Yes, kind of, yes. Well, that's really favorable. Um, so the... Um, so tell us, Brad, when should, I mean, say, say Mike and I start a little software as a service company on the side, um, or when should we think about you? When should we, when should we think about uh, starting to have conversations with bankers about these types of things? I mean, how early is too early for, for you to sort of strike up a relationship with you? Well, we like to talk to companies actually when they're younger and even prior to buyers coming in. And a lot of times we like to talk to them because we can provide good advice. Our strength at the end of the day, other than raising capital, and we do do series B and C to raise capital for companies, our strength is knowing how to make a company more valuable for its sale or exit. Um, 
you know, accountants are good at certain things. Lawyers are great at many things. We're really good at knowing how to maximize the value you get. So companies will come to us and say, I want to do this or I want to do that. And one example will be a company came to us and said, we heard growth is what's the most important. So we feel that we can grow really fast. So we went and looked at it and we said, yeah, but at that growth rate, you're going to have a lot of churn. Okay. And your cost of acquiring customers is going to be very high. And your margins are going to look like you're giving it away um, on the whole thing. And the acquirers we know look at more than just growth. And, um, and so if you can have that growth and do these three or four things, you'll increase not only your value, but you won't have to go out and raise capital every six months. And that has value to an entrepreneur. So we like getting in there early and we think we can help. Now, the second part to your question is, when should they call us? Well, they could call us early to get this help. And we don't bill by the hour. We bill if they hire us to sell the company one day. So unfortunately, when I say this to companies, they all call me because it's free advice. Okay. But, but now let's say you're approached by a buyer. We had a company in Seattle, uh, I think within the last year approach us. They said a buyer came and they offered us $17 million. Um, we don't know. Is that fair? Is that good? Is that whatever? So we came in and looked at it. It was a strategic company and we said, you can do better. And, um, we called up the strategic company, said we're representing this seller, and we gave them a purchase price that they should pay. And they originally said no, and then we said, fine, we'll take this out to the market and sell them to a competitor. And because that strategic company, it's an international company, knew us, they knew we weren't bluffing, and they offered them $6 million more. Now, I, I'm not saying that this is, you know... Um, Facebook buying Oculus or something like that. But to an entrepreneur going from 17 to 23 million, that's nice. And we just did that in the last year. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great story. One of the things I've seen a lot in my career, and I'm sure Mike's probably seen this too, um, is somebody's working away furiously trying to build a, a business and they're building a great business and then they get like the, un, the unsolicited inbound inquiry and I'm, I'm frequently, those are, I mean, frequently those are just people trolling around to see what kind of deals they can get. Right. Um, you are, your... uh, you are a hundred percent right. I'll let you finish, but I want to talk to you about that because sure. well, it's really a jungle. Sure. Sure. I was going to say something even more negative. I was going to say typically those are bottom feeders, but I mean, that's an unfair statement, but, but, I, but my caution, you know, Larry words to my, to people who receive these inbound inquiries are, well, be careful because I mean, I mean, this could just, they could just be trying to see, you know, if they could get you for a song. But that's a great story you told, Brad, that you were able to bump the purchase price by, gosh, that's um, like 33% or something. That's really nice. Yeah, it, it was nice. And, and, and the thing about that is, is we have examples where we've gotten a ton of money for some of these companies. Um, but I wanted to give that example because it was in Seattle, it was in the last year, and getting 33 to 35% more is nice. I mean, it's really nice. And, yep. you know, I, I, when I was in New York, I was doing billion dollar deals. But in the lower middle market, you could get a guy 33 to 35% more and make sure that he finds a good home. That's important. So let's get back to this other point, though. Sorry, Mike. Mike, you were going to no. say something? 
I was going to say it's, it's, you know, just in general, it's always great. It's just a good highlight of how good it is when you're negotiating a deal to get some people involved that are not the, the principal business people. I mean, we do this for, as lawyers sometimes, uh, you know, just serving as this sort of, uh, you know, good cop, bad cop, or, or being able to go in and, and ask for things that the founder may not feel comfortable asking and have there be some distance between you and, and the founder. Um, you know, so that's, it's an important role. And I mean, it's, it's just, it's not, that's a great example of, of that working out really well. Um, you know, it might've been difficult for the founder to come back and try to, you know, renegotiate that deal without someone else coming in and saying, um, you know, we looked at this independently and we think it's, it's, uh, the price is off. Well, you know, what's interesting about that. Then I want to talk about the unsolicited offers. A good advisor knows where they're strong and where they need a team. So, it's interesting. One of the first things we do when we meet a small company is try and find out if they have a good law firm. Okay. Because we don't try and do the legal part. And you know, we love your law firm and I've worked with Joe and it was very successful, but bringing in a good law firm like you guys is really important. And you guys have a huge role there. The accountant has a huge role and the banker has a huge role. And when we're all working together, not only does the company get a better price, but as you know, it, it's, it's okay, so you're going to get a better price, but do you have to give it back? How big is the escrow? What are the reps and warranties? So um, there, there's a lot of stuff here to help this person. And one of them is not just what we do on the valuation side and our knowledge of different buyers and getting a better price, but it is separating the wheat from the chaff. And a good example of that is, and this is back to Joe's question earlier, we are representing a SaaS software company in the Bay Area. We do a lot in California work, in California and in Washington and in Oregon and across the country, but we love the West Coast. Anyway, we're representing this company and the owner said to me, Brad, I get a lot of inquiries. Can I forward them to you? And I go, yeah, I'm working for you. Let me see them. What shocked me was two things. Not only were they getting three inquiries a week, legitimately, okay? But secondly, how 95% of those inquiries were people who had no money. Now, one of the things we have is we also have databases of who has money and who doesn't. And these weren't strategic buyers without money. These were fundless sponsors. Those are so-called PE funds that have no money. Now, you might say, well, Brad, what's the problem with talking to those people? Well, they have no money. They're going to lock you up. And then what they're going to do is you're going to pay a lot of legal fees, accounting fees, other fees. And if the, at the end of the day, they can't raise the money, you don't have a deal. And all the time, it's killing your business because you're taking your eye off the ball. So one of the things we do, and I've got this on a deal right now, is when these unfunded sponsors call, that I'm in the middle. Like, like Mike and Joe were saying, and I speak to them and I have these databases which say if they have money or not, if they don't have money, they're not part of the process because I'm going to bring so many buyers with money. Why would we talk to someone without money? And that firm without money, even if they sign an NDA, they're going to run around and tell your story to everyone to try and locate money to buy you. It's just a bad situation every which way there is. Hmm, that's interesting. So they're kind of... um. They're they're looking for deals and then going to try to put the deal together once they've got somebody on the hook. They say this is a good price. We can I can I think I can sell this to people that I know, 
and they'll here's go out the and problem with them. The problem is that, for example, let's say this small company is worth forty million dollars. Okay, if they're worth forty, and I get strategics bidding against each other, I can probably get higher than forty. Now the PE funds will probably pay an amount less than forty because they don't have the synergies. But remember, you keep a little equity with you. So if the PE guy buys you for thirty-seven, but that three million you keep is worth fifteen million in four years. What do you care? And you don't pay a tax on that because you're rolling your equity. So let's let's go back to that example. The strategic offers forty. The PE is about thirty-seven. And the banker will try and get you 44, 45 or more. Okay. Now, this unfunded sponsor comes in and he knows he cannot win this. So he offers 70. And, and you go, how are we worth 70? He goes, well, I, I'll do it. I'm a private equity fund. Well, he's already lying because he doesn't have any equity. Now, he goes out to the market and he then says, I locked this guy up for 90 days at 70. Well, all the buyers say, well, it's worth 40 and, and you're going to take a cut. He's going to take a cut. So now the most they're going to pay the owners 35. And in the meantime, this owners had to deal with this process with someone who has no money and who is now t- calling everyone in the world and revealing the secrets of this company in order to raise the capital. It's just bad every way. You shouldn't sign up with a buyer who doesn't have money. Yeah. One thing, one thing that I've been telling, I think it's, I'm not, I'm not special in this regard or, or anything like that. So I'm not trying to claim I'm special, but one thing I, I think it's fairly common advice amongst the sort of sell side, um, M and a bar is you, (laughs) you, you tell your client, Hey, as soon as you sign that term sheet and you lock yourself into the exclusivity period, well then the only thing that's going to possibly happen is you're going to go backwards, you go backwards on the price, backwards on indemnities, backwards on, you know, rep and warranty duration. And the average buyer is going to try to renegotiate the price downwards in one way or another, probably at least seven times. So, so get ready, (laughs) get ready for that. But this is even worse. Because this oh, guy, for sure. the fun, the fun was sponsor, the worst, yeah, yeah. for sure. That yeah, one you know is going to happen, and you know you're going to get a lower purchase price because now you have two buyers, one of which has no money, and he wants his commission. Yeah, it's terrible. The whole thing's terrible. So it sounds like um, it sounds like a company uh, would be really wise. I mean, a lot of times what companies do, and I and I've seen this happen, so I'm not. But you know, a company receives an unsolicited bid. They think to themselves, "Well, that's pretty good." Like, gosh, if I go hire a banker, I'm gonna have to pay him, you know, some percent of the deal. I'm not sure if they can do better. And so, <laughs> so then they're they kind of have and haw about hiring somebody. Well, they do, and 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 that's fair. That that's that's very fair because they, they probably they don't know. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you were like, say, say Mike and I had this little software company and, you know, we got a $20 million offer, let's just say. So, I mean, 20 million bucks is obviously a lot of money, but it's at the lower end of what excites investment bankers. And so we're just thinking, God, we really want to hire a banker and pay him five or 6% or whatever percent if we end up getting the same 20 or or less. Maybe we sign the deal, we end up getting negotiated down to 18 or 16 before we close. Then we layer on a banker fee on top. And we feel like, what do you guys do to address that concern on the on the part of the business owner who's reluctant okay. to hire you because of this? It is, a, it is a very fair reaction from a business owner, especially since most business owners have never worked with an investment banker. And since they've never worked with one. Now, they're serial entrepreneurs. 
And actually, the serial entrepreneurs, when they get a bid, they call us first because they've worked with a good investment banker. But someone who's never done it, they go, you're right. We got to pay this fee. But here's what I can't speak to what other people do. Here's what here's what our group does. And partly because I've been doing this 32 years. I was trained on Wall Street. I'm a real investment banker. Okay. Well, the first thing we do is we go in and we talk to them about, you know, their company. And for example, if the first bid came in at 20 and I can't beat it, I'll tell the guy I can't beat it. And then, and then he may not want to hire me and that's fine, but it doesn't do me any good to lie to this guy at the start because my reputation is probably the most important thing. But if I go in there, I kick the tires and I think I can get the guy 30 million, I'll tell him that. Now, what do I charge on something like that? You're right. There's other guys who are charging 6% because they do one deal a year. Davidson does 50 deals a year. But we, we have 1,500 people. We're a big company. Now, investment banker is only 70. But I'll, I might charge that guy 2 or 3%. So now, now this changes. Now, can I get 2 or 3% more than that first bid? Yes, if I'm going to work with the guy. Number two, a lot of these other bankers, yes, you're right, they charge six. They charge these crushing retainers because they're not very good at what they do. They're probably not licensed. And if they do a bad job, at least they charge 50000 up front and 10000 a month. Last two deals I took, I didn't even charge a retainer. And the owner right. said, Brad, the, the owner said, Brad, you're negotiating against yourself. Everyone else is charging a retainer. I go, I know I can get you 33 to 50% more. I'll get it on the success fee. I don't need that retainer. Right. I, I don't need it. And by the way, that proves to you that I'm going to get you more. Because now, without the retainer, if I fail, I get nothing. I had a, just for a reference point, um, I had a, a prospective client come to me recently and they had uh, received an engagement letter from an entity that was going to help them raise money. And the retainer was $50,000. And that was just to effectively to do some looking at them. I didn't, didn't even promise a deliverable. And I was just like, uh, hmm, I don't think, I think you should go talk to some other people and see, see what kind of competitive bids you can get for this work. It was kind of nuts. I, you know, well, anyway. it, it is, it is, but you know what? I also see companies that have law firms that they hired and the law firm is good at family law or doing leases and the guy's rarely done an M&A deal, and they go with that firm, okay? And, and, and then, you know, the strategic buyer comes in, and they got a New York law firm, and this guy has no clue what he's doing, So or woman. So, you know, it's good to have good advisors. It's good to have a good accounting firm, a good law firm, and a good investment bank. Now, right now, we're doing a Series B for a tech company, and we don't always waive our retainers. We waived our retainer on that one, too. Why? They need capital. So, so I went in against two other investment banks. The other investment banks had big retainers and monthly retainers. And, and I went in and said, hey, you need capital. If I charge all these retainers, I'm pulling capital out of the company. I'm not sitting in your shoes. The guy loved it. Well, that's great. That's great, Brad. These are good stories. So uh, we're coming sort of near the end of where we usually tap uh, sort of uh, – 
sort of sort of wind up the process of uh, our podcast. What, what do you want to give us some parting thoughts? I mean, it sounds like people should definitely call you if they if they haven't got a business they're trying to sell or fundraise for. There's no certainly no harm in calling you. Uh, they'll get to know you and maybe you can help them and maybe not. Um, and the best way for people to find you is probably just to search for you on the web. And that's Brad Gewurz, which is G E V U R T Z. And, uh, what, what else can you tell us about tech M and a? So you think we're going to have a great tech M and a and tech IPO year, or you think it's going to be sort of so, so, or want to give us some party well, thoughts on that? Before I get to that, the, the good news about being called Brad Gewurz is, I, and I don't know, Someone thought of this a long time ago. There's no Brad Gewurz is the way I spell my name. So I'm very Google. You could Google me and you only find one. So that part's good. As to what's going on in tech, I think tech M&A is going to have a big year. And when I say that it's going to have a big year, I don't mean just the big marquee deals, which we all read about. I hope in the lower middle market too. And the reason why I hope that is that M&A frees up capital the more at, people think, well, is M&A good? Well, it is because you start a company, you get to a point where you can't grow it anymore. You sell it, you get the capital, you start up another company. That's how capitalism works. So it's all good. The IPO market is a very, very different thing. That's a longer discussion. We do IPOs. There've been a lot of changes to the market in terms of sales trading and research, the big, the big companies and the private market, as you know, a lot of companies like Uber, Airbnb, etc., raised a lot of private capital at very high valuations. And one of the reasons those guys haven't gone public yet is it's going to be a down round in the IPO market. There's a lot of things going on in the IPO market. We're supposed to have a robust IPO market this year. Last year was a bad year, but there's just a lot of nuances going on in this market. And one thing that's going on are the dual tracking. You just heard of a dual track thing, App Dynamics. I think they were bought by Cisco. And I, I mean, they were bought by Cisco like the day before they were going to go public. So what a lot of these big tech companies are doing right now is they're dual tracking. I'm sorry. What that means is they go down the regulatory road to go public, but they're still talking to big tech companies and they might sell themselves prior to going public. It's been uh, it's been great having you on, Brad. This is a fantastic conversation. Um, thanks so much for taking the time, and uh, we'll, we'll have to have you back on again at some point to to kind of update us on where things are. But uh, but for now, this was a fantastic discussion. Thanks everyone else uh, for listening. We'll see everyone next week. Thank you, Brad. Thanks so much, guys. This was great.